What are the main themes of your prayers? If someone were to listen to all the recordings of your prayers throughout this week and study them and analyse them, how you pray, what you pray, what would be the main themes that they notice? When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, as we read earlier in Matthew 6, there are two main themes, two prominent thrusts and thoughts that he brings to them. And he begins in verse 9, In this manner, therefore, pray. Now maybe you have Catholic friends, Muslim friends, and well, what happens with prayer in their religions? Well, they have scripted prayers that they have to recite, sometimes multiple times throughout the day. Is this a prayer like that for us? Is this our Christian version of that? No, it isn't. How do we know? Well, Jesus had said in the previous verses, which we heard last time from Graham, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Therefore, in this manner, you should pray. So, is it okay to recite this prayer? Yes, it's absolutely okay. In fact, it's very good. We mustn't ever belittle or sneer at reciting things as being too ritualistic, too formal, too cold, because then if we do, what do we then do with hymns and songs? Because aren't they words that we recite week after week? We'd all agree that hymns are, are so vital. They're a great source of encouragement and challenge and blessing. But what we must remember is the thing that God wants from you is not a repeated mantra, whether you're singing, whether you're praying. What does he want from you? He wants to hear from you. If it's your words, he wants to hear your desire behind those words. If it's someone else's words, he wants to hear your desire behind those words. He wants these themes from your heart. That's such a difference with the God of the Bible compared to all the other gods of the world. And Graham reminded us last time, didn't he, that real heartfelt obedience is infinitely greater than ritualistic, habitual observance. So then, what are these two main themes in Jesus' prayer? that he's teaching us. Two main things that we ought to have in our minds as we pray that should shape what we desire and what we say. Well, the first is this. God and his kingdom. We can see that in verse 9 and verse 10. God himself should be our first focus and our first thought. Verse 9, our Father in heaven. We're immediately brought to who God is. 
He's a father. He's not a distant force. He's not an evil tyrant. He's not an unfeeling statue. The way he chooses to reveal himself, of all the ways he could, is as a father. And sometimes, I think we can forget how incredible that is. We can lose the sense, because we hear it so often, of how revolutionary that actually is. Because this is the God who once wasn't father to us. This was the God who was once enemy to us. He was once judge and condemner to us. Someone to be fearful of. And it would have rightly stayed that way for all of eternity had he not changed that for us. And we know how he changed that, don't we? By our full confidence and our belief in Jesus. For any of us who's fully convinced that what Jesus promised to do, he's fully able to perform and to stick to and complete then the very centre of who we are and the very centre of who Christ is, is switched. And he becomes clothed in our sinfulness and treated as the enemy that we were. And then we are clothed in his righteousness and treated as the son that he is. And so God becomes father to us. The only difference in that swap is that Jesus didn't stay enemy of God forever, did he? He paid that price. We stay children of God forever. That never changes. But Jesus took our enemy status, buried it in the tomb, bore the full punishment for it, and then rose to life and received the highest name, the name above all names, the victorious Lord over all things. And so we read in John 1, 12, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. That's you. We were powerless to change that. But God, through Christ, decided to change that. To make himself a father and a defender and a friend where he was once a condemner to us. And see something else very important in the first line of this prayer. Jesus doesn't say, my father in heaven. He says, our father in heaven. Why, why is that? Because a Christian was never designed to just be a single unit. The Bible describes God, doesn't it, as a potter and we as his clay. And when someone becomes a new creation, God forms them into something new. Now, if we were to form a brick or a jigsaw piece, that isn't just designed to be on its own. It's designed 
to connect to a whole. That's what a Christian is. You've been formed to fit into this building that God is making. That's why we pray, Ah, Father. A brick isn't a standalone object, object, and neither are you. A jigsaw piece isn't just a, a standalone item, and neither are you. You've been created to connect to this whole, the church, God's bride. And so throughout this whole prayer, Jesus frames it as our, us, and never me, my. And so you cannot read this prayer or pray these verses without being reminded that you are a part of this building and you're part of this family. You cannot be disconnected from that. Now, so what is the first request or desire that Jesus expects us to have, that he expresses in this prayer? What do we read? Hallowed be your name. This is where Jesus begins. Now, what does this word mean, hallowed? Well, the grass in sports stadiums is often referred to as hallowed turf. If you've ever had a tour of Anfield or Goodison, you're allowed to walk down the corridors, you're allowed to go in the changing rooms, but they don't let anyone just walk on the grass. You can't just run all over it. Why? Because it's hallowed. It's considered special and pure on a higher level. It's protected. It's thought well of and treated well. That's hallowed. That's the kind of idea of our attitude towards God. And when Jesus says God's name, he means his reputation. If you gain a good name at work or at school, and they say, ah, the name of John Smith will live on forever in the school, then that's your reputation they're talking about, your fame that's remembered and made special. Not literally the name, oh, John, what a name. And everyone who comes is called John. They love it. No, it's the person behind the name. It's the reputation they have. And so in other words, hallowed be your name is us wishing, Lord, let your name, your reputation be made special. May people value you May you be hallowed in their hearts and in their minds. That's the longing desire in our hearts. And that leads us right to the next thing we long for in this prayer. Your kingdom come, in verse 10. And what does Jesus mean when he talks about his kingdom? God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Well, if you go home later and read through Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, John, you'll find Jesus say things like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or you'll see him say to his disciples, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, heal the sick that are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near 
to you. Or you'll see him say to the Pharisees, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now that seems, doesn't it, like the kingdom is something that's now, that's in the present. But then other times, Jesus says things like this. Many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now that doesn't sound like something right now. That sounds like the future. Or when he said to his disciples just before his death, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Or when Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, the King will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now in those verses, it seems like the kingdom isn't here yet. But it'll come after Judgment Day. So which one is it? Is the kingdom here? Is God's kingdom still to come? Well, it's begun, but it's not yet finished. It is present, but it's still fully to come in the future. Picture yourself at Otter's Pool Promenade, and it's very early in the morning. You see the light from the sun begin to break over the horizon. The glow of the light starts to brighten everything around you. And you begin to feel the slight warmth on your face. But the sun itself hasn't yet become visible. That's today how it is with God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. For those who've been born again, the kingdom is something we will experience physically in the future, like the sun when it rises in all its glory. But we do begin to know that glory today. We experience its blessings and its light and its warmth in part here and now. And those beams of light keep spreading further and wider as the gospel message goes out and reaches into the darkest parts. As the physical kingdom grows nearer in time and God's name becomes hallowed in those places the light touches and in the hearts of those it touches and as new citizens of this future kingdom they become lights that shine before men this is to be our first desire when we pray Jesus says and I think our deepest desire And so in praying, your kingdom come, we're longing for two things. We're longing that God would spread the light of his kingdom here and now, before the sun is risen, through saving souls, through changing sinners' citizenship from the world and hell to heaven, by adding to that number of the saints who will one day go marching in when the physical kingdom comes. And second, we're longing that God would quickly bring that kingdom 
in his future through the coming of Jesus. And so through those things happening, through God's kingdom being advanced, we will see God's will being done on earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now what is somebody's will? What does that word mean? Well, it's a person's desires and a person's wishes. The thing that you want is what you will to be done. And so Jesus would pray later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, pray, Father, your will be done. Because the cross is what the Father wished to be done. That's what he had decided So now when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, does this fact mean that on earth God has no power? That God has no control? That God has no say? That in heaven he achieves what he wants, but on earth things don't quite go the way he wants it to go? Well, some might point to these last two years of COVID and restrictions and all the confusion that's come with that and say, that wasn't God's will. That mustn't have been God's will. He he wouldn't have wanted this to happen. Lamentations 3.38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being, good and bad, come? Amos 3.6. If there is calamity in a city... Will not the Lord have done it? Does Jesus mean in this prayer that there are things outside of God's will, that we have to pray inside God's will and control? No, it can't mean that. If it did mean that, that things on earth weren't going, on God, weren't going God's way, and if it did mean that we're to pray that they would be so, then God would have to be the one to make it so anyway. And so it wouldn't make sense for your will to be done on earth as in heaven to mean that. Everything that happens on earth is the will of God. Nothing happens outside of God's knowledge and control and power and permission. Nothing at all. But as God's kingdom spreads and that light of the gospel shines further and wider, those who are living outside of God's will, living for their own will, their own desires, their own passions, their own wants, they become transformed and renewed and have their wills in line with God's will. And so God's desires, God's passions, God's wants are then seen more and more on earth. Do you love seeing that happen? Jesus teaches us that we should value that happening, that we should cherish this through our prayers. I wonder, do you need to make your prayers look more like this this week? This is the great the greatest theme we could ever pray about, isn't it? 
And we have the privilege of speaking to the undefeatable, all-powerful creator who loves to hear us. So God and his kingdom. Jesus' prayer that he's teaching his disciples and so teaching us now shifts its focus from that first important theme, God and his kingdom, towards the second. Us and our character from verse 11 to 15. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Or to put the English in a slightly clearer way, give us our, bra- our daily bread today. Now I can't hear the term daily bread without thinking of Proverbs 30, where we read this. This is a man called Agor, and he writes in verse eight, give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food allotted to me so that I won't be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And so that I won't be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So there in Proverbs 30, Agor prays that God would give him his daily bread. That God would not give him too much, not give him too little, but give him just enough. Whatever is allotted to him, just what he needs in order so that he can praise God in the best way he possibly can. When was the last time that you prayed this for yourself? When was the last time you heard another Christian pray this? Ego is saying, if I had loads of possessions, loads of wealth, and I was completely full, I wouldn't trust myself not to neglect God. I know how so easily I could get caught up in the pleasures of riches, and I could start to lose a taste for God and his pleasures. But if I had no possessions and no wealth, and I lacked everything I needed, I know that I could so easily become bitter and angry at God and even take matters into my own hands and steal. So therefore, God, keep matters firmly in your hands. Don't make me so poor that I curse you. Don't make me so rich either because I'll forget you. Give me whatever you've allotted for me so that I still rely on you my daily bread. Let me ask you, are you content with that? You might never get a high paying job. Are you content with that? You might never have your dream house. Are you content with that? Give us today what we need for today, our daily bread. Jesus tells us to pray like that. Jesus tells us to want that. Are you content with having that? What makes us content with that? You sang it before. My Jesus, I love thee 
I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Saviour art thou. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, it is now. That's what makes us content. This is the pattern for our prayers. Have we strayed far from this? Or are we right in line with it? Verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Our sin leaves us with more than just the law broken. It leaves us with a debt to be paid. God demands something from you because of your sin. But you've instantly started thinking of the gospel, haven't you? You already know how the story ends, that our debt of sin was fully paid by Christ on the cross, dying to bear our sin. But then that raises an important question. Why do we confess our sins like this, if our sins are already forgiven? Don't we read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, Jesus does not need to offer up sacrifices daily as those high priests did, first for his sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Or Hebrews 9, 26. Jesus then would have had to suffer once, sorry, suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he's appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Or chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Our debt is paid in full. In a way that can never be added to, that can never be improved upon and has no need of being repeated, ever. But so then, why do we need to pray here for forgiveness? Why do we still need to confess our sins? Well, this isn't a prayer of a sinner pleading for salvation. This is the prayer of a believer who has salvation. And so we're not dealing with God as judge anymore. We're dealing here with God as a loving Father. And so while our sin, for those of you who believe, no longer means a break in relationship between us and God, as it once did, it does mean a loss of intimacy, doesn't it? And we know this with our earthly families, don't we? If we sin, against each other. Our relationships don't just end and change, but there's a loss of intimacy there. Something that needs to be dealt with. And so for you, if you're a believer, this confession of sin is not the basis for your salvation, because you already are saved. Jesus is the basis of your salvation. But rather, this confession of sin is to restore the intimacy of that relationship that we already have 
It's a trait of someone who already has a relationship with their father. Forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors. Now those two things seem pretty straightforward. These two aspects, God forgiving our debts to him, us forgiving others' debts to us, and they seem to just kind of run alongside each other. But then, when we get to verses 14 and 15, perhaps it takes us by surprise, because we found out they don't just run alongside each other, they're completely tied together, and you can't have one without having the other. Verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why is that? Because in order for God to forgive you, you need a contrite heart. A heart that is soft and is sorry and is sincere and sorrowful, that isn't self-seeking, it doesn't point the finger, but it holds its hands up. And a contrite heart is the type of heart that will recognise that you have already been forgiven by God, and it's the type of heart that will be ready to forgive others. A contrite heart is the type of heart that knows it's only fitting to forgive as abundantly as you've been forgiven. And if you can't forgive others, you don't have a contrite heart. And if you don't have a contrite heart, you're not truly repentant of your own sinfulness. That is why those two things are linked. That is why those who have been forgiven are so ready to forgive. I wonder, is there sin in your heart right now that you haven't yet brought before God? You can do that right now without fear. Why without fear? Because he's the God who loves to forgive. Have you ever noticed that every, everything, every bit of righteousness that God commands us to do is stuff that he loves to do? Everything as Christians that we're commanded to do is stuff that God himself loves to do. God loves to forgive. He's cheerful in doing it. So confess to him your trespasses, your debts to him. Or maybe is there a person that you know right now who you haven't yet forgiven? Remember the depths Christ stooped to to forgive you and be Christ to that other person in your life. Show them how good forgiveness is. And as well as being concerned with any past sins, as well as being concerned that past sins are forgiven, Christian believers are just concerned that future sins are avoided. And so, verse 13, Jesus teaches us to pray. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
But wait a second, do we have a problem with this verse? Because for some of you, your mind has moved to what we read in James, chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone himself. But Jesus says, do not lead us into temptation. So is God tempting us? And do we have to pray that he would kindly not? Let's go back to James. James 1, 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone himself. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Who is responsible when we sin? Us or God? Us. If God allows us to be taken into a situation by people's influence or Satan's influence and we sin, who is responsible for our sin? It's us. If God puts us in the middle of a trial where we face some sort of temptation in order for him to grow us, and we sin, who is responsible for our sin? It's us. There is no time where we can ever say, God has caused me to sin. If it wasn't for God, I wouldn't have sinned. Sin is always our doing, our fault. And it should be the desire of every Christian to avoid sin. And so because of that, it should be the desire of every Christian to avoid temptation. Is that your desire? Is that your desire? Or are you the type of Christian who doesn't mind temptation? Because you know that being tempted itself isn't sinful. Jesus was tempted after all. And so you'll allow yourself to enjoy the possibilities for a little while in your mind before brushing it away. If that's you, then you've lost. You've fallen. You've missed the point. Sin and evil and temptation, they should try and, we should try and allow those things to be the furthest thing from us because it's poison. No matter how sweet the taste seems, the aftertaste is death and hell. And so we should run from sin, run from evil, run from temptation with more zeal than Jonah ran from Nineveh. Does that describe you? Does that describe how you pray? I wonder, do these two main themes, God and his kingdom, us and our character, do they appear in our prayers? Are we concerned about these things that Jesus is teaching us to be concerned about? Now finally, let's look at this final sentence that, as we mentioned earlier in the service, some of these manuscripts do include. For yours is the kingdom and the power 
and the glory forever. Amen. Why are we bringing all of these things before God, you might ask? Well, this final sentence answers that question and reminds us of why. For yours is the kingdom. It's his kingdom that we're now a part of. It's his kingdom that we're longing for through our prayers. For yours is the power. It's God's power that's going to accomplish everything that we're asking, everything that we're praying. For yours is the glory. It's his, glo- it's his glory that will be displayed and shown to be valuable by our prayers. That is why we pray. That is why we can be so confident and joyful in bringing all these things to God. And then when we say, Amen, or hear Amen, it's not just the signal that the prayer's ended now. It's got a meaning. It means, yes, let this all be so. It's full of confidence. And as our lips say, Amen, our hearts should be saying, yes, hear us, Lord. You are fully able to do all that we've asked. Let all that we've said now be so. So we've seen these two great themes of prayer that Jesus brings to us. Are these important? Yes. Are these important to us? We can pray they will be. God and his kingdom. Do you care about that? Do our prayers when we meet during the week show that we care about that as a church? Us and our character. Are we serious about becoming more like Christ? Are we Christians who are simply satisfied with being saved? Or are we dissatisfied with being like our saviour? Are we satisfied with simply being saved? Or are we not satisfied until we are like the one who saved us? Do our prayers show that? If we were to record our own prayers and listen back to them and study what we pray for, how we pray, would we see that we want these same things that Jesus teaches us we should want? That we value these same things that Jesus teaches us to value? That we love these same things that Jesus teaches us to love? Well, I think it's only fitting that we end this sermon by praying. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, may your name be special in our hearts and valued. Father, may may your name and your fame be spread among the nations. Let your kingdom come. Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May you bring 
people into the kingdom. May you build us up and make us more like Christ. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us what you would have allotted for us. We thank you that you supply every one of our needs. We praise you that you're the sufficient giver and that we never need to look anywhere else. That we have all we need for life, for godliness, found in you. Forgive us our debts. If the sin that we're harboring and protecting in our hearts, help us to see how sweet you taste in comparison and help us to let go and kill that sin. Father, we thank you that our relationship to you can never be altered or destroyed, that you hold your children in your hand and will never let one of them be snatched away. Father, we pray that there would be no sin between us and you. Help us to confess regularly and with a heart that desires to be right with you at every moment. And may we forgive our debtors. Give us a heart that Christ has. Give us the mind of Christ who didn't puff himself up and consider himself so much greater in that sense but humbled himself. Father, may we do the same. And Father, we pray because yours is the kingdom. We pray because yours is the power. We pray because yours is the glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.